These are, um, here's my pink card from last January. We, uh, you know, we've been doing the 21, this is our second year for doing these times of prayer like this, and, and I'm looking at my pink card. Last year, we gave these out, and what we did was we put the names of people on our pink cards that we were praying for to, to come to know Jesus as their Savior. And uh, I'm looking at this card, and there's a name at the top of this card who gave his heart to Jesus this last year. A uh, man by the name of Paul Rosa. Where's Paulie, huh? You know what I mean? Like, so you think that you think that God doesn't hear these prayers? He does. He really does. He answers. And then I'm looking at this one. This is another one we did last year. We had these arrow prayers. We put the name of somebody in there we were praying for. And you know what? I'm still praying for my friend there. Doesn't know Jesus yet, but he will. I already know that. Because, you know. Um, hey, um, coming up in just a couple of weeks, before I get into the Word, real quick, I wanted to tell you about the Holy Spirit weekend that's coming up. I'm really, I say this every year, but I'm really excited about the Holy Spirit weekend this year. We, um, what we do, if you're new with us, we have these three retreats. In the fall, we have a men's retreat, and then in the spring, we have a women's retreat. And then in the middle, in the wintertime here in February, we have uh, a retreat for everybody, men, women, kids, anybody that can come. And it's like an on-site retreat is really what it is, if you think about it that way. And uh, we call it the Holy Spirit Weekend. And the whole purpose of the retreat is to just set time aside, meet with God. Sometimes we've got to take some extended time, you know, to go deep. And this year, we have this guest coming who's going to be speaking and facilitating the retreat. His name is Bob Sorge, and uh, this is Bob's photo behind me. And Bob lives in Kansas City, and he's an author of numerous books. And I've asked him to speak for the Holy Spirit weekend. His theme is going to be on the Old Testament book of Job. And he's written this book, and there's a picture of it there. Uh, pain, perplexity, and promotion, a prophetic look at the, at the life of Job. This is the book that he'll basically be using, in a sense. Uh, and um, so if you want to get a look at it, I know some of you like to read ahead. You can download this on your Kindle or your iPad, or you can buy a hard copy of it, and I would encourage you to do that and, take a, and begin to study. This is, I read this book. It's um, the best that I've ever read on the book of Job. And uh, what makes it special is Bob's own story. Bob, has he was a pastor many years ago, and about 25 or so years ago um, became afflicted with this thing that just that took his voice away. And I don't think they've actually ever yet been able to diagnose it. But he talks barely above a whisper and with great pain. And so you'll see when he's here, he holds the microphone up to his mouth, and he just really is barely above a whisper. But out of that, out of that 25-plus years of trial and pain, this guy's got some perspective on the life of Job, and you don't want to miss it. Uh, so it's just, it's going to be an awesome weekend. And Bob is good friends with our friends at Church of the Living God, and so they know he's coming, so... They're all coming in, so that means if you want a good parking spot, you gotta, you know, you got to cut her early and beat our Church of the Living God friends. But um, it's going to be a great weekend. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 22. I'll be there 
in a moment. Like Elaine spoke of earlier, in two weeks from today is our Covenant Sunday as a church, and that's where we agree together that we're going to serve Jesus and love Jesus together for another year, for 2019. And in preparation for that, I wanted to just bring a couple of messages, and this morning's message is really designed to set the stage for Covenant Sunday and prepare us for that. Um, you believe that God wants you to be free? Who believes God wants you to be free? Can I get a wahoo? Yeah, God wants you to be, he wants you to be free. Yeah. Well, what if some of the things in your life are the things that are holding you back from that freedom and God wants to get rid of those? And what if some of those things, even good things, you really enjoy? And God says, mm, but they're slowing you down. Do you believe that God wants you to be free? God has this weird thing, this scary thing. He, he likes to mess up my comfort zone. You ever notice that about God? I would say he, the only reason why God comes into my comfort zone is to kick me out of it. But he's got this uncanny ability. About the time you think you're cruising and you're feeling good, God just says, hey, let's stir that up. You ever notice how he does that? You say, God, come on. I'd like to ride easy a little bit. You know, it's actually our tendency to, towards comfort that actually is the very thing that hinders our growth. Because growth, the law of growth is this. It requires pain. We even have this term for it. We call it a growing pain. If you think about life, there's, just, there's no growth without pain. You don't grow in comfort. Comfort does not grow you. Ease does not grow you. Pain is what grows you. But you and I hate pain. I mean... Let's just be honest. I do too. I can't stand it. I find pain to be very uncomfortable. But you know that God loves you enough to make you uncomfortable. He loves us enough to even sometimes cause, allow pain perhaps, some kind of dis-ease, discomfort. <laughs> in order to shake things up because God wants you to grow and your tendency in mine is to just do whatever it takes to be easy but sometimes God you know he's a good good father we love that song but God sometimes appears like a coach where he says give me a lap he says give me 10 more push-ups and you're down on the ground, and your arms are wobbling, and the sweat's dripping off your nose, and God says, give me 10 more. And you're like, God, oh, I can't, God, 10 more. Ah. Hmm. I hate it when God does that. <laughs> How about you? So my verse this year, and it's just my personal verse that I, I think God's given to me for 2019, is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And it says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's the verse that I'm focused on. I put the verse before it up on the screen behind me so you could kind of get the context. It's interesting because it says, be on your guard so that you may know not, may, may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall in, fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it seems that the key to not getting sucked into error is to be growing forward, that there's no such thing as neutral in the Christian life, that there's only forward and backward. And if you're coasting, you're actually going backward. So I've always got to be moving forward, and he tells me to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the verse that I'm sticking with this year, because I find that growing in the knowledge of Jesus, well, that's got its difficulties, but it's easier than growing in the grace of Jesus. Growing in the knowledge of Jesus just requires you take a few classes, study, read a few books, join a Bible study. You can, you can increase your knowledge of Jesus fairly easily. I mean, it still takes work, right? But it's easier. Growing in the grace of Jesus, that's hard. That's really hard. That's, that's character stuff. That's down deep in my gut stuff where... Because Jesus is gracious. Gibbard, I love Jesus for that. I, I love, I'm amazed at how Jesus responded to people who hated him. Doesn't it amaze you? You read, you read in the Gospels and the Bible, and you say, man, how did you do that, Jesus? Like, these guys hate you, and you love them anyway. These guys, these guys want to kill you, and you're nice to them. I don't get that. Jesus, these guys, these guys are trying to trip you up. They're trying to, and Jesus had this ability. The other thing I love about Jesus, he had this ability to move through any social circle easily and was the same person. He, he could be talking to children and relate really well to them. He could be talking to crooks, criminals, prostitutes, relate really well to them. And then he could be talking to politicians, kings, queens, princes, the upper echelon of society. And, and it's like he treated all, was the same guy moving through all those different circles. I love that about Jesus. He's so gracious. So to grow in the grace of Jesus, man, that's a tough one, because I, I call it the hillbilly, that's my word, sometimes my hillbilly comes out, and I, and I like to excuse the hillbilly, but the truth is the hillbilly needs to die, and that's not easy, and so I'm called to grow in his grace, and that means there's some that means sometimes God puts me in situations where I'm challenged, where I'm required to die to myself, where I've got to swallow my pride, where I've got to, and he's training me to grow in the grace of Jesus. Growth is just not an easy thing because the law of growth is what? There is no growth without. You guys don't say that very enthusiastically. You say it like I'm feeling it. You're like, eh, pain. <clears throat> growth, there's no growth without pain. 
I find when I start my relationship with Jesus, I bring this baggage into it. And it's not all bad. Some of it's bad. Clearly, there are, there's sin and there's junk that I had when I first began my relationship with Jesus. And frankly, I'm glad it's gone. You know, like I'm really glad that porn is gone. You know, that's not been a problem for me for a long time. Entered my relationship with Jesus, that, it's gone. It's gone. Thank you, Jesus. I don't really want it, don't need it. We're moving on. And there's a lot of things like that. But then there were things that when I came into my relationship with Jesus that were good things. Things that, they, they weren't sinful, they weren't bad, they, they were things I liked. And sometimes Jesus asked me to give those things up because they inhibit my freedom or they somehow don't fit into what he's doing. I know for me, I'll give you a personal example so that you know what I'm talking about. But for me, that was music and worship. I've, music is very much a part of my, who I am, the fiber of my person. And uh, I've always played it, always sung, always performed. Traveled in high school, traveled in college, from Oregon to Florida to Maine, hundreds of churches, camps, conferences, singing, performing music. The church that we were pastoring in Pennsylvania before we came here, I, I wrote and directed musicals. The last Easter that we were there, in that church, we had over 2,000 people that came to our Easter program to see the musical and the direction and all that. And I wrote it from a blank piece of paper. But then when God moved us here, it was pretty clear. Uh, your performing days are done. I can tell you that I miss it. There are Sundays when I'm standing there and I want to jump up on the stage like every bone in my body wants to get up there and join the worship team, get in it. I miss those days. Oh, music hasn't stopped. It's just now private and intimate. I still sing to Jesus every day. I still write songs for Jesus, songs that you'll never hear. Jesus loves them, you know, still there, but the performance is gone. You say, well, why would God ask you to get rid of that? Because that's a good thing. That's not a sinful thing. Hmm. Uh, to be honest, I don't really know. Those are hard things to give up, aren't they? Has God ever asked you to give up something that was good? It wasn't sinful. It was good. And God says, I want you to let go of that. Okay. That's hard, isn't it? You know what's even harder? What's even harder is when God gives you a promise and he's going to give you something, and then you wait for it, you pray for it, you work for it, and then God comes through on the deal. He answers your prayer, and you get it. And then you go, wow, hallelujah. You tell testimonies all over the place about how oh, God gave this to you. And, and then somewhere along the line, God says, I'd like you to give that back. That's confusing. God, why would you want me to give back something to you that you gave to me? Why would you do that? 
Well, that brings us to Genesis chapter 22. That's the setup for this chapter this morning. Because this morning we're going to look at the life and an example from the life of Abraham. And God did that exact thing in Abraham's life. He, he came through on a promise. <clears throat> Abraham was a man who was 100 years old when God answered his prayer. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, couldn't have children. They were childless. Their whole adult lives, their whole married life. And you can imagine that they prayed and they, and they agonized about, about having a baby. And God, when are we going to have a baby? And when, when? And, and then Abraham is about 87 years old. And God actually promises Abraham, you're going to have a son through Sarah. Oh, 87. That's crazy. But God did. God, God stepped in. He gave him the promise. You know he had to wait 13 more years? You want to drive somebody crazy? Make them a promise and then make them wait to have the promise answered. It's like telling a kid, hey, I'm going to get you ice cream. You might, and then for the next five hours, you're going to get me ice cream? You're going to get, where's the ice cream? We're going to get ice cream? You ever done that with a kid, right? It's better sometimes. Every parent knows, yeah, you don't make the promise ahead of time. You surprise them with it, and that's a lot less stressful. God promises Abraham, I'm going to give you a kid. Thirteen years later, Isaac is born. And so here's Abe, a hundred years old. He finally gets the answer to his prayers. God promised him. He received the promise. And you can imagine a hundred-year-old guy, you would say to Abe, Abe, it is time to kick up your feet and just enjoy the bounty of the Lord. <laughs> but you know that God enters your comfort zone to kick you out of it. And so God steps in and he asks Abraham to do this. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. Genesis 22.1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Stop right there just for a quick second. We have to know the difference between testing and tempting. God tests, but God never tempts. James chapter 1 tells us that that uh, God never tempts us to do evil. God himself doesn't do evil, and he doesn't tempt you and me to do evil. The difference between tempting and testing is really in their motive, why they happen. So the whole motive behind temptation is to make you fail. I literally want to put this in front of you and watch you fall on your face. <laughs> That's temptation. The purpose of a test is not to make you fail. Every good teacher knows you have to test your students because what a test does is it reveals what you know and what you still need to know every good teacher does that and they look at the test they say oh well look he's doing really great in algebra a little weak in geometry so let's just focus a few lessons on geometry to make sure they they get that isn't that what a teacher does god is a faithful teacher he tests his students on a regular basis, not to trip you up, but to reveal, here's what you're doing great, 
hey, here's where we're going to work. You notice a theme in your life lately? Notice something that you're kind of maybe wrestling with, an issue you're dealing with? The faithful teacher has identified, well, here's a thing in you that we're just going to have to work on for the next little while. And he's faithful. And so God tests Abraham. And he says, verse 2, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Say what? Sacrifice him. Sacrifice. You know, for a sacrifice to happen, there has to be some pain. There has to be some loss. You're going to feel that, aren't you? It's no great sacrifice for me to give you a paperclip. I've got a million of those. I'll get you one. But for me to give you my wedding band, that's a sacrifice. Because, yeah, there might be other rings in the world, but I only have one wedding band. This, this is the band that my love gave to me on our wedding day and swore her life to me. This band, see? You want me to give this band? Ooh, that's going to hurt. That's a sacrifice. Notice the wording in verse 2. Notice the buildup. God says, take your son. Mm. Your only son. Oh. Whom you love. Ah. Isaac. Oh. You see the pressure? He's zeroing right on in. Abraham. That thing that is the absolute most important thing in your entire life, that thing that you think you could never live without, that thing that you thank me for every single day, that thing right there, I want you to give that to me now. And not only that, God says, I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. You know what that means? That means Isaac's not coming back. That means, Abraham, you'll have nothing to bury. You won't even have a place to put a tombstone, Abraham. He's a burnt sacrifice. That means that the very most Abraham would have out of that is a little box with a couple ashes, maybe, to remember his son by. But otherwise, he's gone. Isaac is gone. God says, I want you to give him to me. Now, that's a sacrifice. You see what I mean? Why would God give you something, bless you with something, something good right out of his hand. And why would God say, I want you to give that back to me? The only thing I can figure is this. Sometimes God's greatest gifts in our lives become God's greatest competition. And God does not want you and me hanging on to the gift he wants us hanging on to him, the giver. 
And so he says, and so look what Abraham does in verse 3. We're going to begin to see now how Abraham's doing on this test. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. How's Abraham doing on that test? He obeyed right away, didn't he? Look at someone said, I don't know who said it, disobedient, delayed obedience is disobedience. It's not, oh, I'll, I'll obey you in 10 years, God. No, that's disobedience. Because you're disobeying until you actually put action to it. Abraham did not delay his obedience. That very next morning, got up, saddled up the donkey, got the boys ready to go, and they headed out. Verse 4, on the third day, whoa, they walked for three days. Can you imagine? It's like Abraham had concrete in his sandals. I can only imagine that you can hear the kind of hanging over their head. Can you imagine the heaviness as they're making this three-day journey? On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance and he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will come, we will come back to you? Is Abraham lying there? Because Abraham knows what he's about to do. There's no we coming back. Or was Abraham saying the word we there, kind of like how my, my wife says the word we when she says, why don't we vacuum the carpet? That means you. Every married man knows that phrase. Why don't we? Yeah, there's no we here, Kimo Sabi. I know exactly what you're asking me to do. Right? Maybe that's what Abraham's saying. We, we will come back to you. I don't think so. What's really going on there? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what Abraham was thinking. And I love this, how the Bible kind of completes this story for us. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And it says, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. So do you see what Abraham's doing? Abraham's thinking, here's, Abraham, here's Abraham's plan. His plan is this. God wants me to kill Isaac. Okay, I'm going to kill him. But then he's going to raise him from the dead. That's what he's going to do. And we do that. God tells us what he's going to do. And then we figure out how God's going to make it happen. We do that all the time. And so Abraham had this plan in mind. It wasn't God's plan, but it was Abraham's plan. He's thinking, I'm going to kill Isaac, and then God's going to raise him from the dead. That's how this is going to go down. And so he's walking forward to do it. See Abraham's character coming through? Abraham assumed the best about God. You know what I'd be doing? I'd be griping all the way impugning God's character. God, you call yourself a good God. Why would you ask me to do this? A good God wouldn't ask me to do this. This is crazy, God. You would never ask me to do something this uncomfortable, this banana cakes. God, you're, you're, wouldn't you? You know I'm not the only one that would do that in this room. 
What does Abraham see that you and I don't see? He knows that God is a good God. I don't understand why he's asking me to do this. This seems like nuts. But I know somewhere in this, God is good, and there's, he's going to do something with this. And that was Abraham's assumption. And so when Abraham says, we will go worship and we will come back, I kind of think that's what he was thinking. We. And then it goes on. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son, Isaac, and he, car- he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up <clears throat> and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What was going through Abraham's mind? Did Abraham have like a basketball down his throat at that point? Just, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. In the back of his mind, I think Abraham's thinking, I sure hope so. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. You know, I just have these crazy thoughts sometimes, but I wonder, did Abraham arrange the wood in such a way that it would be the most comfortable for Isaac? I just think, I'm a dad. A pile of wood isn't very comfortable. I know what God's asking me to do. I mean, this is, this is not a good scenario here. But would I at least put the wood in such a way that, Abra- that Isaac's last moments would be as comfortable as possible on a pile of wood? These are just things that cross my mind when I read the Bible. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Now that's cool. Notice something in verse 1. Abraham's name is only mentioned once when God calls out to him. He says, hey, Abraham, here I am. And here he goes, Abraham, Abraham. Do you know why he does that? Anytime you see that in the Bible, actually, that's a very typical thing in this Middle Eastern culture. When you greet a good friend, you, you call their name twice. It's a, it's a casual greeting in that culture. And God, God does it with several people through the Bible. Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses gets it as well. And it's interesting, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says on Judgment Day, many people will come to me and say, yeah, I know some of you know that verse, Lord, Lord, and what is Jesus going to say to them? I never knew, who who are you again? 
See, it's, it's, a cat, it's a greeting that good friends have. And Jesus is saying, Matthew 7, these guys are going to come to him and be like, hey, yo, Jesus. And Jesus is like, mm, I don't know. And so Abraham, Abraham, look at God. He goes, Abraham, Abraham. It's like God's going, yo, bro. Hey. And notice where he's at. Abraham has demonstrated. Look at where Abraham's at. He's walked this far, faithful, obedient. You see God's heart just leaping out of his chest towards this little old guy. Abraham, Abraham, my guy. God is, this is a, this, this moment, dare say, is probably more of a proud moment for God than anybody else. And, and then he says, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, and, and notice, notice God's words to Abraham, okay? I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this, and you've not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, Abe, all nations on earth will be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed me. I'm not making it up. You hear, you hear the heart of God there. God is so stoked. I mean, he is so stoked about Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, you, you were willing to give, this, give up your son, and I'm going to pour it on. You gave up one kid, I'll make you the father of nations. You had this one moment where you thought everything was going to fall apart. I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abe. Everybody's going to know about this. I mean, God is thrilled, beyond thrilled at Abraham and the faith that he's displayed in this situation. And then, verse 19, I wish it was longer, but it says, Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. I'd love some more details. The Bible doesn't give it to us. I'd love, to, I'd love to know what they talked about on the way back home. I'm thinking, I'm thinking it was not just casual conversation. So look at the weather. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was not that way. I wonder, was Abraham just beaming? Was Abraham, was his heart still pounding out of relief? <laughs> Was that Abraham? Was Isaac 
in shock? Was Isaac walking down there, down the road, going like, whoa, that was close, man. Whoa. And the next time, I wonder how to, what it looked like. Here's, what I, here's my, twisted, my twisted imagination. I wonder what it looked like the next time Abraham went to Isaac and said, hey, son, want to take a walk? Yeah, Dad, I'm busy. <laughs> Look at the time, Dad. Woo. Right, I'm thinking he probably. You know, you know what Isaac was, you know how Isaac responded? The Bible tells us that too. We get a little clue at it, actually. If you go to Genesis 31, uh, Genesis 31, Isaac's son Jacob. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Isaac's son Jacob is talking about his dad. And he talks about his dad's relationship with God. And he calls God an interesting name. Do you see that on the screen behind me? So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. That's a very interesting term. Oh, I bet you Isaac had the fear of God. What do you think? And it's mentioned as well in, Gen in verse 42 of Genesis 31 as well. Same thing, same concept. The fear of my father Isaac. Oh, yeah. Isaac knows God's not someone you just mess around with. And that stuck with him the rest of his life. Huh. What I find fascinating is that God made this incredible promise to Abraham after Abraham was willing to let go of the very thing that God promised to give to him. But you know, that's not the first time that God promised Abraham that he would do that. God promised Abraham that, God promised Abraham several times, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Matter of fact, Abraham's name used to be Abram, and then God changed it to Abraham, indicating that you're going to be the father of many nations. So, Abraham already had that in place before Isaac was born. And then God, and then Abraham gives up Isaac. He's willing to let go of Isaac. And then God comes back and, in essence, reaffirms the promise. Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many. I don't know if somebody's got a phone going on over there, but. Ding, 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 ding. That's you, Tara. All right. Love you. So, that means, are you ordering pizza? That would be awesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know, it's embarrassing, and then I made it worse. I, we love you. I'm just having fun. God, God, God makes this promise. Um, and the temptation that we have, friends, is to hang on to the gifts that God gives to us along the way and then lose sight of the ultimate promise. I propose to you that Isaac actually was not the promise. Isaac was just a, he was just a, a step toward the promise. That the ultimate promise that God had made to Abraham was that you would be the father of many nations, that I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham. That was the promise. Isaac was just the means to that promise. And Abraham's temptation is to hang on to Isaac as though that is the promise. 
And I propose that you and I have the same thing. And, and usually, and that's what inhibits our growth, that God gives us these blessings, he gives us these things, and then we hang on to them, we say, oh God, you've been faithful, you've answered my prayer, you're so faithful, you're so good, you're so good. And God goes, yeah, but that's not exactly where I was taking you, I've got something else. But I like what you gave me now, I'll, I'll keep it. But I've got more. See, it's kind of like this. Um, the promises of God are like the title to my car. The, 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 that title with my name on it, it says that that car belongs to me. So let's say my car gets stolen and somebody takes it and I don't have it. Just because I don't possess the car doesn't mean I don't own it. Why? Because the title says that car's mine. Thief might be driving around with it. It's still my car. And when it's recovered, it's my car because my name's on the title. My point is I don't have to actually possess the promise in order to own the promise. The promise says it's mine. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that all of God's promises to us are yes in Christ Jesus. God says it's your promise. Jesus paid for it with his blood on the cross all of God's promises are now owned by you and me. Now, let's say they recover my keys, but they don't recover my car yet. So they find my keys first. Oh, here's my keys. Hey, these keys are awesome. I love these keys. Oh, they're the best keys ever. These are awesome keys. This car is mine. I don't have the car yet, but this car, look at these keys. These keys are phenomenal. These are the greatest keys ever. This is my car, man. Well, you don't have the car. No, but the keys, look at the keys. Woo, I love these keys. Look at the title is the promise. The keys are Isaac. God gave Abraham the keys. He gave him Isaac. The promise was yet to be fulfilled. And when Abraham died, the promise hadn't even been fulfilled yet. But the promise was no less secure. Are you understanding this? Does that make sense? And our temptation is to hang on to the keys like, like God has given us everything, and yet they're not. They're just the part of the process to the ultimate promise. And in our relationship with God, part of what grows us is trusting in the promiser and being thankful for each time a promise is revealed, each gift that God gives to us along the way. I'm so thankful for them, but my ultimate trust is in the promiser and his word. I have the title. It says it's mine. I might not possess the full promise, but the title says it is mine and that, my friend, is the Christian life. Let me uh, apply this to our church for a moment, okay? Because, like I said, we have our Covenant Sunday in two weeks. So I want to just bring this home as we close out this morning. So, it's one thing to give up wrong things. We're thankful those are gone. Amen? It's another thing to have to give up good things. That's difficult. But then it's entirely something else when 
I have to give up something that God gave me that he promised he would give me. Would you agree that's really hard, just like Abraham had to do? So I'm just going to propose something to you as a church. Let me close with this question. And the question, the question is this. If God were to test you in the same way that he tested Abraham, how would you do? Does God have the freedom to come to you and say, I'd, I'd like you to give me that right there? Does God have that freedom in your life? And how do you know if it's never been tested? It's just a theory until it's actually tested. True? So based on your own life experience and your own walk with God, can I ask you, if God was to test you in the same way that he tested Abraham and come to you and say, I'd like you to give me that, whatever that is, something very precious to you, would you? Let's, let's talk about it as a church. I'm going to be, now, the question would be this. What if God, you know, as a church, we spent 16 years without a building. This is our 21st year. First 15, 16 years, we met in schools, hotels, so forth, setting up, tearing down every week. Many of you remember those great days. They were great days, actually. But what if God were to come to us and he were to say, I want you to give that building, 314 Woodbridge Street, to another church. I just want you to give it to him. Bless him with that building. Would you fire me for even making the suggestion? Or would you say, I could see God doing that. Because if God asked Abraham to give up Isaac, you bet your booty he could ask us to give up this building. Don't you see that? Now, before any of you get all scared, listen, I'm not suggesting that there's some plan to unload our building this year. Please, don't go there. It's a hypothetical question designed to make us think, to simply evaluate. Would I give up something that we like in favor of the grander thing that God is doing? Because let me tell you this, as a church, our purpose and our destiny is not 314 Woodbridge Street. This is not. This is only the keys. We haven't seen the car yet. See, 21 years ago, God pulled this group of people together with a vision to be a regional church that would launch other ministries, start other churches, influence other ministries in the region. That's our DNA. That's our destiny as a church. Our destiny isn't this building. In fact, when we bought this little building five years ago, God told us it's a launch pad, not a lily pad. It's not a spot to sit and rest. It's a place from which people are sent, equipped and sent, and that the world is impacted as a result. That's our destiny. Does that make sense? And yet the temptation as a church, the temptation for every church is to think that their building is the end all. And it simply isn't. It's only a tool. It's not who we are. And God's dream for us is so much bigger 
Are you following? Are you catching my drift or do I need to keep snowing? You got it? The point is that, that God wants us in this place where when he puts his hand on something and he says, I'd like you to give that to me, that we are willing and ready to do it. And I find that to be the hardest thing at all, of all, in my relationship with him. And I admit, I pray that prayer, Lord, I want you to have your way, but I always pray it with a little caveat in the back of my mind. Just, okay, not that though, Lord. Don't you? I'm like, okay, God, don't test me like you did Abraham, please, because I'm pretty sure I'd flunk it bad. Don't test me like that. But at the same time, I, but at the same time, I want, I want to know God like that. I want to know God like Abraham, with my hair on fire, dropping thirty thousand feet in a second, and only relying on God as a safety net. I mean, I want to know God that way, don't you? Oh man, so much! I want to see it. Ah, but it scares me to think what He might ask for along the way. So this morning, as we close, I want to ask you, I think that the Holy Spirit is, you know, this message has personal implications and corporate implications. Personally speaking, what's God, is God pointing his finger at anything in your life? Saying, hey, hey, my friend, I'd like you to give me that. Maybe he is. Corporately, what's God pointing his finger at? Is he saying, hey, New River, you willing, to, you willing to lay it all on the line for me for the, sake of, for the sake of expanding my kingdom in this region? You know that my destiny for you is not to be a, a cute little church at 314 Woodbridge Street, but I've actually destined you to influence the world, to transform it with the life of Jesus that overflows out of you. You know that's my destiny for you, God would say. So are you ready for that? So this has two implications. So let's pray. Father, I, uh, huh, Lord, I thank you because you love us and you want us to be free. And Lord, even the things that I love sometimes hold me back. And, um, I just ask in Jesus' name, you, I want you to have your way in my life. Lord, you say you want it. I want to be able to give it to you. And uh, God, I pray that I would have the heart of Abraham to obey instantly and not, uh, not lock you up in committee forever. And Lord, I want to obey you, follow your prompting, follow your lead. I want to live a life of obedience, a life of faith, radical faith, Lord. And uh, I pray that we as a church would be that kind of church as well. I thank you we are, Lord. You've grown us. You've grown us. We've done, Lord, yes. Lord, I know there's so much more, and we're eager to see it. So, God, we're yours. We devote ourselves to you to that end. We want to be the people of the promise, um, believing you for awesome things. And uh, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me and
as the worship team, they're going to sing.